I'm glad that you had the mind and uh, God gave you the ability to be here so that we can continue to reflect on Christ and thinking about the cross and how we can be and do better uh, as we live in his name. I think it is possible, I think it's very easy uh, for us at time to take for granted the great privilege that it is to be a part of God's family. I mean to say, if you grow up in the church or if you have been a member of the Lord's church for uh, some length of time, at a certain point in time, maybe we, maybe we take it for granted. Every now and again, when I begin to think I may not be quite as, as deeply in love with the idea that Jesus died for me as I should be, every now and again when I begin to think that I may be taking for granted just how much God has done and just how blessed I am to be a part of his family. I find it useful to think about and meditate on what it means to be a part of the Lord's church. And as I study through the New Testament, I find that the Bible presents the church in several different ways, and every one of them is very meaningful. Every one of them is very rich. And when I sit down with one of them and really think about it and really search the scriptures and try to allow the word to be engrafted to my own heart, I gain a deeper sense of appreciation, a little better, a little better understanding of just how great a privilege it is for me to be a Christian. One of the things you'll find when you look in the New Testament is the Bible refers to the church as God's temple. And I think as uh, people who live, you know, 2,000 years after the, the time when Jesus walked on the earth, 2,000 years after the destruction of the temple there at Jerusalem, I don't know if we really and fully appreciate what that means. That is, this idea that we as the church of Christ are God's temple. And so I thought maybe it'd benefit you the way it benefits me to think about that for just a few moments of time uh, here tonight. I want you to think with me about what it means to be God's temple. I want to talk with you first about temples generally. We've got to take ourselves back to a different time, at least for the place where we live. We've got to travel back in time, and we've got to travel maybe to another part of the world so that we could become more familiar with this idea of a temple in the first place. When I see the word temple as it's translated in the Old Testament, a word hakal, and the word is not necessarily, it's not necessarily a religious term. Sometimes it's used outside of a religious context, but, but just the word itself, not taking into account the context, it means a great house. And so we say that we are God's temple. What we're saying is we are God's great house. And friends, you can see that in several places uh, in several places in the Old Testament, I just want you to see, for example, here a couple of times. In, in 2 Kings chapter 24 and verse 13, just for example, the Bible tells us there that Nebuchadnezzar had besieged Jerusalem. And, and when he did that, he went into the temple. And the Bible says in that verse, verse 13, he carried out from there all the treasures, listen to it, of the house of Jehovah and the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, made, listen to it, in the temple of Jehovah, as Jehovah had said. 
And so there in verse 13, we see the Bible equating these two things, the house of Jehovah. And it's a different term that's used. The house of Jehovah on the one hand, the temple of Jehovah on the other. These two things are analogous. This house, the place where God lives, it is his great house. Verse 13 tells us. There's several examples like that, but I want you to look also at Zechariah chapter 8 and verse number 9. Here, we're thinking about a different period of time, and, and God has a different temple that has been resurrected or been, uh, been uh, raised at this time. In verse, eight, or verse 9, the Bible says, Thus says Jehovah of hosts, let your hands be strong, you that hear in these days these words from the mouth of the prophets that were in the day that the foundation, listen to it, of the house of Jehovah of hosts was laid, even the temple that it might be built. The house of Jehovah, even the temple, the dwelling place of God, even the great house of God. The Bible says in Psalm 65 and verse number four, blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach unto you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. We shall be satisfied if you will allow us to partake of your house, even your holy great house. Psalm 65. And so when we use this term temple, the Hebrew term tells us that we're talking about a great house. But I've said to you, it's not strictly a religious term. I think the translators, particularly of the King James Version, did this intentionally. They wanted us to be able to distinguish when this term is being used in a religious sense and in a secular sense. And so when it's used in a religious sense, many times it is translated temple in your Old Testament. But when it's translated in a non-religious, a secular sense, it's translated palace. And so we find several times in the Old Testament these dwelling places for kings being described as palaces, but it's the same Hebrew term, these great houses. Just for example... In 1 Kings 21, verse number 1, the Bible says it came to pass after these things, you remember this incident, that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace, there's our term, of Ahab, king of Samaria, hard by the great house of Ahab, the dwelling place of a king. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 18 regarding the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah told King Hezekiah this, And of your sons that shall issue from you, whom you have begat, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the, listen to it, palace of the king of Babylon, the, the great house of the king of Babylon. And on and on I could go showing you examples of that. And so this term, hey, call, it refers to a great house. Sometimes it's used with respect to the great houses of earthly kings. Other times it's used with reference to great houses of pagan gods. Perhaps you recall the Philistine, they, they had a god, one of them was named Dagon. And, and when they took the Ark of the Covenant, they took the Ark and placed it in the house of their god Dagon. Perhaps you remember that the statue they had built to him fell down, his arms and his head were broken. But you see, they put the statue of their God in the temple, in the great house, because it was their understanding that he lived there, that he dwelled with them in that great house. 
On another occasion, if you recall, when Saul was killed, the Philistines took down his body and they cut off his head and they took his armor and the Bible says they placed his armor and they placed his head in the house of their gods and in the house of Dagon in his dwelling place. And so the term itself is not a strictly religious term. It simply means a great house. It can be used in a secular sense, referring to the dwelling place of a great man, the impressive palace, if you will, of an earthly king. It can be used in a religious sense, having nothing to do with Jehovah, when the understanding of the people is, this is where our God dwells among us, and it's great because that's where our God resides. That makes it special. That's in the mind of the pagan. That's in the mind of the heathen. Once God decided that he was going to take a special people for himself in Old Testament times, part of having a special people was that he was going to dwell with them in a special way. And I know you recall this, when he called Israel out of Egypt, he has them out there in the wilderness and he he calls Moses and Moses comes up to meet with him in the mountain and he shows him the pattern for the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle was constructed and that was the dwelling place where God was going to be with his Old Testament people there in the wilderness. You recall that that was replaced at a point in time by the temple that Solomon constructed. You recall that that was replaced at a point in time by the temple that uh, Zerubbabel had reconstructed. And of course, by the time we come to the New Testament, we find the temple that Herod had built over that one. Think with me for just a moment about these Jewish temples. The Bible says of the temple or the tabernacle, it was a portable structure. So uh, we call it a tabernacle, a tent, but it was still an impressive. uh, If you remember going through all of the details of what God had called for them to do in putting that together and and what he called for them to do in putting the articles, the holy articles that would go inside. It was still a great house, but it was portable. But here's what made it special. If you recall in Exodus chapter 40 and verse number 34, the Bible says there that after it was all completed, in the previous verse, it says that Moses had had finished the construction of the tabernacle. And the Bible has told us that he did according to all that God had told him. He did it according to the pattern in building the tabernacle, you'll remember. And once he completes that, the Bible says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, listen to it, and the glory of Jehovah filled the tabernacle. I'll tell you something, until until the glory of Jehovah filled that structure, it was just a bunch of wood and a bunch of animal skins and a bunch of gold vessels. But you know what made it special? It was the dwelling place of God. It was the place where he was going to be among his people, where he was going to meet with his people. It It was special because it was filled with his glory. If you remember reading in Leviticus chapter 1 through 7, and uh, I, I, I always am stricken when I read through that because it's sometimes a little more difficult to read through those, those chapters there about all those different kinds of sacrifices that are being made. But I want you, next time you read Leviticus 1 through 7, I want you to keep this in mind. What's the point? What's the point? In those chapters, we read about the various kinds of offerings that Israel could bring, and and we read about the various reasons that they might bring them, but you know where they had to bring them all? 
They had to bring them all to the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle was special. It was God's temple because he dwelled there. His glory filled that structure. But but it was also special because when his people wanted to make offerings and sacrifices to him, they had to do so at the temple. They had to do so at the tabernacle that he had commissioned. The tabernacle that Moses built was special. It was it was nothing more than sticks and metal and skins It was portable. It could be taken down and moved. It wasn't as as impressive as some of the buildings that we might see in our own community now in some ways. But, you know, it had those those holy articles that were devoted to the service to God on the inside. And it had the mercy seat there in the, the holy of holies. And that's where God met with his people. And that's what made it special. Well, at a certain point in time, you remember that uh, David had it in his heart and his mind. He wanted to replace that. Maybe he's looking at his own dwelling place and he's thinking to himself, my dwelling place is so much greater than the tabernacle that we have for God. And I'd like to build something else. And and God is going to acquiesce. He, He doesn't need it, but he's going to acquiesce and allow the construction. But he says, your son can build it. I don't want you to do it. And so Solomon, David, having made the preparation, Solomon takes care of the building. He takes care of the construction. And so he builds something that if men were to look at, it would have been much more impressive Solomon's temple. But you know what? For all that building, all that gold, all the skill and craft work that went into it, you know what made it special? It was filled with the glory of Jehovah. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 about this place. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice and the glory of Jehovah filled the house and the priest could not enter into the house of Jehovah because the glory of Jehovah filled Jehovah's house. That's what made it special. Until Jehovah entered into that house, it was a bunch of sticks. It was a bunch of stones. It was a bunch of precious metals. It may as well have been a bunch of scraps, but when God entered into it, friends, that made it different. Because now it was the place where he would dwell among his people. You know what else? It was the place where the sacrifices and offerings had to be made. The same chapter, 2 Chronicles 7, if you look at verse number 12, the Bible says, And Jehovah appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place to myself. Listen to the language for a house of sacrifice. God was going to dwell with his people in this place and his people were going to sacrifice and serve and worship him in this place. That's what made it special. We don't know exactly what the temple that Solomon constructed looked like. There have been lots of people who have offered us renditions of it, reconstructions, various kinds of depictions. But from what we read in the Bible and what we know about Solomon and his great wealth and the wealth of Israel in general at this time, it surely would have been, it surely would have been something impressive to look at. But it was only special because God dwelled in it. And because he accepted the offerings and sacrifices of his people there, that's what made it different. 
As you know, the temple that Solomon constructed was destroyed. We read a couple of the uh, passages I made reference to them. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came, eventually he tore all of that down. I mean, it was something good to look at, and it was also something good for people to plunder. When, when Israel didn't do right and God allowed them to be taken by these marauders from the outside, you know, they went into the house of God and took out the precious metals and so forth, and they carried all of that back and used them for their pagan uh, ceremonies and all. Well, once God decided to allow Israel to return to the land. One of the first items of business they needed to rebuild the temple. See, they understood God's dwelling with us, accepting sacrifices at our hands. That's what makes us different. That's what makes us special. And so they go about the business of rebuilding here. And, and in, of course, Ezra chapter 3 we read about the fact that the Jewish temple was, was being rebuilt after the exile. In, Ex, in Ezra uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse number 8, uh, the Bible says there, Now in the second year of the coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Josedek, and the rest of the brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed to the priests, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upwards to have the oversight of the work of the house of Jehovah. Then stood Jeshua and his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together to have the oversight of the workmen in the house of God and the sons of Hinnadad and their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Jehovah, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites with the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise Jehovah after the order of, David, of King David of Israel. And they sang one to another and praising and giving thanks unto Jehovah, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Jehovah, because the foundation of the house of Jehovah was laid. Listen, they were rejoicing when the foundation was laid because they knew that this was what made them special. And they made their offerings because they knew this was the place where God would accept them. Verse 12, but many of the priests and the Levites and the head of the father's houses, the old man that had seen the first house, the one that Solomon had built. When the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. Some people were looking at this uh, were looking at this structure and they were comparing this structure to the one that Solomon had built and, and they just weren't impressed to look at it. In the book of Haggai in chapter 2, we're told uh, very explicitly why that is and uh, I don't want to read it all, just maybe for the sake of time, but in the book of Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 through 9, we see that some of the ones who were familiar with the, the first house or the one that Solomon had built, they thought this one paled in comparison to that one. In Haggai 2, verse 3, the question was asked, Who is left among you that saw the house in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes, listen to it, as nothing. To look at it, uh, 
Maybe, maybe in comparison to some other things, it would have been impressive. But for people who saw the one that Solomon built, they said, boy, just to look at this thing, it just, it just doesn't compare to that one. But maybe they, maybe they were looking with the wrong eyes because the gold that would have been used or the, the artistry that was performed, that, that wasn't what made it special. What made it special was that it would be the dwelling place of God among his people. What, what made it special was that this would have been the place where he would accept sacrifices with them, from them. What made it special was not what they saw with their eyes, but what he saw with his. That's what made it special. And you can see it if you look at uh, this same chapter. When you look at verse number nine, the Bible says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says Jehovah of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says Jehovah of hosts. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It matters what I see when I look at it and what I intend to do with it. And he says of this temple, the latter glory is going to be greater than the former. God sees it differently than men sometimes do. Some years later, this house, the one that Jerubbabel had constructed, it lie in some disrepair, it lie in some ruin. King Herod, in his desire to curry favor with the Jews, he began a rebuilding project. About 18 B.C. or so, he does this, and it takes him some number of decades, and he builds a new structure, and it, it appears to have been a very magnificent one. This is the one that Jesus would have gone into. This is the one that he would, where he would have taught and so forth. And you remember how his disciples were marked about how great it was to look back on this house. This is the one that Herod had reconstructed. We don't know exactly what it looks like. Uh, perhaps you know that uh, you can see some of the, some of the ruins still today uh, from this great construction that uh, Herod had built, but, but Herod built a great complex, and so it wasn't just the temple. It was a magnificent complex that he built. Well, here's the thing about this temple. Jesus told his disciples that it would be destroyed, and so it was. In 70 A.D., this uh, building was destroyed and all of that complex by the Romans, and so we look at this and we say to ourselves, uh, it's once, the, once God decided to take a people, I can see that he's always sort of had a special place where he could dwell among his people. He, he had a special place where his people could come to make sacrifices and offerings, but, but all the physical buildings that God has commissioned, all the physical buildings that fit this description of his great house, where are they now, we ask ourselves? All of them are gone. There is no physical locus that you can turn to. There is no place you can go on the earth and say, this is where God dwells among men. This is the location where he will accept sacrifices. There is no physical place like that. Paul, when he was on Mars Hill, he says in Acts 17, listen, you ought to know that, that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. And so if you want to find... God's great house today, you'll have to look with spiritual eyes. All these Jewish temples are gone today. The Christian temple, the Lord's church, this is the great house.
where God dwells among men. Today, the church is the place where he accepts sacrifices and offerings. And so, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And I want you to see this because you see these allusions to the temple of God several places in the New Testament, but I don't know if we always appreciate what that means if we just read it with our sort of 21st century eye. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's trying to remind them of who they are. He wants them to see how special they are. And he says, know ye not that you are the temple of God. Don't you know and understand that you are God's temple and the spirit of God dwells in you? Don't you know that, don't you know that you're precious and special? To God Almighty, don't you know and understand that you are the king's great house today? Don't you know the spirit of God dwells in you? Church, that's what makes us different. That's what makes us special. I I like this building and uh, I appreciate the comfort that it affords. Uh, But I've worshipped... I've worshipped outside. I've worshipped in storefront facilities. I've worshipped in buildings bigger than this one, and I've worshipped in buildings a lot older than this one. Didn't smell as good either. But you know what? It never, ever mattered to me at all. Because that's not what makes us special. What makes us special is that we are the great house of God, and his spirit dwells in us. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, a little different context there. Paul has got some concerns about the allegiances that people are forging with unbelievers. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he he begins to deal with that. He talks about in verse 14, not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers and so forth. And he goes on to make several arguments here about uh, the concord that Christ would have with Belial and so forth. And of course, he doesn't have that. But look at verse 16. He uses our he uses our theme here, this idea of a temple in verse 16. And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? Listen to it. For we We are a temple of the living God, even as God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will dwell in them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Friends, that's a reference to to what God said in Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, you can find him making references to that other places in the Old Testament. But in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 to 28, he deals with that very, very clearly. The church, the church is God's habitation. The church is God's dwelling place. In Ephesus or in Ephesians chapter two, you see something similar here. In Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse 19. And of course, before this, he's talked about the fact that Christ has torn down the middle wall and made everybody one. So Jews and Gentiles can all be part of God's family. But look at what he says here. Uh, I find it very compelling in verse 19 beginning. So then you are no more strangers and sojourners, but but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Fellow citizens. That means to say you're citizens in God's kingdom. That's one way that the church is described. You're of the household of God. You're you're part of God's family. That's another way that the church is described. But look at this. 
being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom each several or individual building fitly framed together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God in the spirit. The church is God's temple. The church is the dwelling place of God. The glory of God dwells among men on the earth in his church. That's what makes it different. That's what makes it special. And, of course, it is the place where spiritual sacrifices are to be offered. And I could go on with this, but I'm going to just make, I want to look at one passage here, and I think it makes the point very clearly. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5 here, you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, the Bible says, beginning at verse 4, unto whom coming, that is the Lord, unto whom coming, a living stone rejected indeed of men, but with God elect precious, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are built up into God's spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's why the Bible says you give yourself a living sacrifice. That's just your reasonable service. You are the house of sacrifice for God if you're a part of his church. If you're a member of the Lord's church, then it means you're a part of the great house of God the one that's filled with his glory, near the location where he accepts offers, offerings and sacrificings from his people. God's temples were holy because he dwelled in them. God's temples were holy because he accepted sacrifices in them. And that is true of the church today. In verse 17, we have a warning about how we about how we think about the church, how we speak about the church, and how we treat the church. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 17, the Bible says, listen, you need to know and understand that if a man destroys the, the temple of God, him will God destroy. Why? Because the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. The temple of God is sacred, and that's what you are. And so we should always think about that when we have something to say about the Lord's church, uh, when we interact with people in the Lord's church, when we go out and we behave with people who may not be part of the Lord's church. We need to remember, listen now, God's temple is sacred. God is not pleased when people do anything to tear it down. I'm always bothered when people uh, say or do anything to tear the church down. It just costs God too much, just too near and dear to him. It's our job to, to remember what a great privilege it is for us to be a part of it and live our lives in full recognition of what that means for us. God dwells in us, and he looks for his spiritual sacrifices to come from us. What a great privilege that is for every one of us. If you're not already a member of the Lord's church, why wouldn't you want to be? 
a part of his great house. Why wouldn't you want to be? Jesus Christ died so that you could be. You accept his offering of salvation by coming to him with faith, repentance. You're baptized to have your sins washed away. If you'll open your mouth and say you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we can help you. We can help you answer whatever questions you may have and help you to be immersed in the water so that your sins can be forgiven. You can be added to the great house of God and be a part of his, a part of his temple. If we can help you, friends, would you let us know how as we stand together and sing this song of invitation?